Once you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Hello, beloved listeners. This is Octavia's Parables, Parable of the Talents. We are reading Octavia Butler's works chapter by chapter, trying to harvest what their wisdom is there for all of us. I am your co-host, Adrian Marie Brown. I'm Toshi Regan. And as always, we want to hear if there are any announcements going on. Anything happening in your universe, Toshi Regan? Yeah, I have like, a really exciting announcements. I'm I'm being offered gigs in front of people, Ooh. and <laughs> the world rejoices. It's pretty wonderful. Um, and uh, the, the summertime coming out outdoor gigs and um, people being really creative around how to gather us all up and um, and take good care of each other. Yeah. So I'm gonna be in uh, South Carolina at the Spoleto Festival with um Yay. You know, Jason Moran and Alicia Hall Moran doing their Two Wings project. Okay. And I'm gonna be uh, at Lincoln Center um, outdoors on Juneteenth, y'all. On Juneteenth, if you are in the New York area, um, you should come check it out on Juneteenth at Lincoln Center's gigantic outdoor space. So plenty of ways to be together and um and 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 still do this physical distancing thing and that's a a beautiful program um curated by Carl Hancock Lux my brother and oh yay yeah how what an impressive young man yes (laughs) (laughs) we would love that you called him a young man I mean Uh, what an impressive man I guess he's not young that way anymore he's young he's 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 young young in heart young as a creator you know yes his yeah. spirit is, 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 nice. I just, I'm always so impressed with his existence and like what he does so many things. He's incredible. <laughs> he does so much. Y'all look up Carl Hancock Rux and get your life. He's an incredible, um, poet. He's, um, playwright, uh, musician. And he was in um, the opera, right? Yes. He was yeah. the first bank poly. The first bank poly. Yeah. He was the first bank poly and he was, he had two roles. He was Ben Cole, and we actually got rid of this role, but he was um, Mrs. Sims' um, nephew. Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, but we we let we let him go. <laughs> but yeah, Carl is Carl is great. He's curating is a beautiful program. Um, that's that's uh, on Juneteenth. Beautiful. That's Big great. Big Lovely will be there. Um, I love that. I am. Um, Let's see what's happening over here in, in the realm of Adrian. I am <laughs> um, winding down my programming part of my year and heading into like a writing, deep writing mm. phase for the summer um, and looking forward to it. But before that happens, um, Holding Change will officially be out in people's hands. And um, I'm very excited. I just am doing a facilitation training with the Emergent Strategy Ideation team right now, and we're training out of this book. And it's so exciting to feel it come alive and off the page mm. um, with with people. And uh, that's the the idea is that it'll be something that people can really use. Like, oh, okay, this is how you do facilitation. This is what it is. This is how you tie it into Emergent Strategy. Um, so I will be doing a series of. Instagram live 
interviews and um, conversations with the different contributors from the book. So um, if you follow me on, on Instagram, that's probably the best way to see that that happening. But mm-hmm. I'm excited. There's incredible contributors, incredible teachers. So I think we'll have a, uh, a good time unfolding. I look forward to that. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I'm excited to hear what you think, Toshi. <laughs> I'm just like, what do you think? I made a little I can't book. Wait. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Um, I can't wait to read it. I want to. Yeah. I want advanced copy so I can be, oh, be ahead and um, I'll send it to celebrating. You <laughs> I'm like, I'll send it right Thank over. You. So, all right, and then the laughter stops. So we're heading into chapter 13 of Parable of the Talents and. We're, I think, just going to be more and more intentional about the mindfulness and the intentionality which we, with which we are inviting you to be in this conversation with us. The warnings for this upcoming chapter, um, this is one that includes rape. It includes uh, enslavement. It includes um, a lot of violence. That That's where we are in, in what's happening in this story. And we're reading this in part because we want to understand how do we recognize that these things happen, are happening all around us, prepare ourselves to survive uh, them, strategize around how to help get our comrades and our peers and our loved, beloved communities out of these circumstances, which they are in right now. So just keep mm-hmm. that lens in mind. It's like we want to feel what we're feeling as we are reading this together, and we want to feel it in a way that we can then adapt appropriately to avoid these conditions, to survive these conditions, to move beyond these conditions. All right. Mm-hmm. So get a bunch of water and be ready to clear your clear your energy in the ways that you know to do, which can involve breath, sage, putting your feet in the dirt, right? You don't have to hold yeah. on to the pain of this. You can hold on to the lessons. Okay. Yes, that's yeah. good. All right. So Toshi. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like this. Well, it's like we're in this with y'all and the team that works on this, Toshi and I and the producers, um, we've been touching in with each other. Like we're having nightmares. We have to be conscious, conscious about when we do the recordings of this and when we're editing it and, and all of that, because the, the content is difficult. And so we're not beyond being impacted by these things. So we're sharing it from our own, like here's what we're doing to practice moving through these things. And we invite you into intentionality as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so Toshi, land us into chapter 13. What happens here? Here we are. Chapter 13, when vision fails, direction is lost. When direction is lost, purpose may be forgotten. When purpose is forgotten, emotion rules alone. When emotion rules alone, destruction, destruction. I'm going to have one more destruction. Yeah. So um, from Earthseed, the Books of the Living, I call this chapter, What is Freedom? Or prisons and detention camps, <laughs> stolen people. This is what America do. It's just... Um, the, you can see that the infrastructure that leads to uh, um, Octavia's imagining um, of what would be happening in this era is is being created right now. Yes. And so in real time is being created right now. So we start off with Larkin and um, Larkin tells us what her journey was. And this is really great 
to information to have. Uh, she was taken to a, a re-education camp that was housed in an old maximum security prison in Del Norte County, just north of Humboldt County, Pelican Bay State Prison. The thing had been had been called, but now it's called Pelican Bay Christian Re-Education Camp. Uh, she has no more memory of it, and she's really, 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 really grateful for that. Mm. Um, of course, there's all kinds of people in this place, uh, but they had a nursery. Uh, and in this nursery, the, the babies were completely um, separated from any other people. Um, the people were called heathen inmates. Um, and they were, uh, they were cared for. And she gets a new name. And her name is, I say, Asha Veer. You think yeah. that's how you would say it? Yeah, I think I've said Asha Veer at different points. But yeah, I, Asha Veer works for me. I can go with that. Uh, Here, I'm going to go with that now. Yeah. <laughs> Veer, Asha Veer. That might be it. Asha Veer. So we'll good. try that on. Yeah, Asha Veer. And we get introduced to another um, form of technology, which is called a, um, a dream mask. And also they are called head cages. And this is um, something you can put over your head. It's kind of like a ski, ma- ski mask with the uh, goggles. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you can get like books. And in, these books are like full of different, um, you know, stories. And uh, they say it's like, like kind of a, the next iteration of virtual reality kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, people love them. <laughs> I'm thinking about is like, remember when you just when it was Friendster? <laughs> yes. Oh, I remember <laughs> Friendster. Then you were like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" This Friendster. is outrageous. We can be MySpace. Oh my god, I can add music. Yeah. Then again, Facebook. Whoa. Yes, a book of faces. Yes. Anyway. We love all new things is, is, is what, and we, and we jump into them a thousand percent. Yeah. We, we, we create the marketplace, we create the everything. And so this is what's happening up the road is we're wearing these things on our, our heads and walking around with them and they're um, entertaining us, but their technology, their relationship is there um, connected to old lie detectors and to the slave callers. And, you know, some kind of frightening, efficient form of audiovisual subliminal suggestions. Yeah. And I, I just am remembering how, you know, Facebook got caught being manipulative with their news feed, you know, mm-hmm. doing a news feed that's full of awful news and then taking information on how responded, how people respond. I'm sure they still do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly. Yes. Yeah. And just like we are now. Um, Jared's people didn't like this new entertainment world and they thought it was like a drug and it was morally weak. And so to avoid their censure, um, the way uh, TikTok tried to avoid Trump's mm-hmm. <laughs> censure, yeah. um, they, uh, they, they made these new religious um, programs. And so the, uh, the featured Christian American characters. And so the black, the black one is a, uh, is an Amazon-like Black Christian, and her name is Asha Ver. Hmm. So that's how she they named her. And um, she says that Asha Ver is rescuing people from these heathen cults, anti-Christian plots, and squatter camp pimps. 
She says, I suppose someone thought that naming me after such an upright character might steal any of the hereditary inclination in her towards heathenism. I don't know. Um, But Christian America believed that one of the things that had gone wrong with this country was the intrusion of women into men's business. And so through all of this is this idea that women are just not to be trusted unless they're in the service of their men and the Lord. So this is going to extreme levels. And we also find out how she gets uh, these new parents and um, she's adopted. Um, She is the daughter of Madison Alexander and, and Case Guest or Casey Guest Alexander. And these are middle-class Black members of the the Church of Christian America in Seattle. And they adopted her during the Al-Can War, which is like the war that's between America, Canada, and Russia. And Alaska, Um, right? I mean, yeah, America, Alaska, and Canada. Yeah. Um, The Russian thing is later. (laughs) I was like, they're not um, quite yet. Mm-hmm. Not quite yet, but they're 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 in the triad of um, Alaska, Canada, and Russia. They're the the most economically sound uh, places, but they're yeah. not involved yet. Yep. So basically, there was some bombing in Seattle, and they was like, "We gotta we gotta um, move on out of here from the bombing in Seattle." Uh, so she tells a, a a story about how these these people arrive to end up being her her parents. And she says that um, she was, they brought her in so they can raise her properly and save her from whatever depraved existence she might have had with her biological parents. Yeah. And that is Larkin's um, journey um, as a child. And here we are uh, from the journals of Lauren Oya Alamina, Sunday, December 4th, 2033. And she starts off being grateful for Sundays because this is a day that they are starting to get more time to themselves. And it is the only day that they get this, this um, breath of time. They get a meal of boiled vegetables and they get to rest in their own quarters. And she's just so grateful for this, but they're not supposed to do anything. They can do Bible study. Anything else is considered work and a violation of the fourth commandment they still can't speak to each other they can't repair their clothing or their shoes everything is rags everything needs constant upkeep and they're not allowed to do anything and if they do anything they will get lashed so (laughs) she writes of course the moment we're left alone we do as we like we hold whispered conversations we clean and repair our things as best as we can we share information and she writes, that's it. Only on Sundays can they do things because the rest of the week they work. They get up before the sun. They work, 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 work. And by the time they come back, it's dark again. So Sunday is a very, very treasured um, time. She also describes um, some of how they live. So they have this one bucket, which is the toilet. And they each and they have a 20 liter plastic bottle of water um, with a cheap siphon pump. And they each get this plastic bowl um, to eat and drink out of. And it's the weird bowl. It's like very, very beautiful colors. And it's the only thing they have that has colors and they all hate them. Mm-hmm. Um, they call <laughs> Mary Sullivan calls them their dog dishes. Yeah. Um, so she is getting to write and she says, um, 
that the writing is helping her to remember that she's human, that God has changed, and that they will escape that place. Uh, she also reveals that Mary Sullivan and Allie have combined their blankets and they make love to one another at night and it comforts them. And she's looking at the ways that people, um, different people are finding comfort in such a horrible condition. Yeah. And Mary Sullivan actually asked her, you know, oh, do we disgust you? And Lauren really is like, do you love my friend? And uh. she just, and she says, of course I do. And then she says with a smile, well, you know, then be good to one another. And if there's trouble, you and your sister stand with us, um, with Ursi. We're the strongest single group among prisoners. The Sullivans and the Gamas have tended to group themselves with us anyway. So she basically uses the opportunity to say, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you're going to be with us. Okay. And are you, do you love my friend? <laughs> And I love that Lauren needs love to be involved. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I mean, you can't just be down there doing that. <laughs> you, yeah, you I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Lauren's a heavy, heavy person. Yep, yeah. we, we just be happy to meet somebody to cuddle with. We, we don't need well, love. Like, it's such a moment of change, too, because this is like her maturation. You, I, I love that they show this value shift because she was once the, you know, 16-year-old who was just getting it in with her. Um, her exactly. boyfriend and you know she wasn't in love with him she was like figuring it out and now she's like is there love come on now you know yeah she was very clear when she was 16 that it mm -hmm. was okay to to have the the physical you know beautiful physical kind contact mm -hmm. with somebody you care for but she was like i'm not marrying this brother like <laughs> exactly. i'm not even taking him with me like no. when, when this is like it's gonna be you a don't rap. know about the destiny um <laughs> So she is worried, though, that somebody will break break ranks and report them. And that's that it's very, very dangerous. And they have um, some of the new people from a squatter camp, you know, that she finds a vulnerability there. In particular, there's a, a woman named Kristen Blair, Crystal Blair, mm -hmm. and she is a big bully. And that's what comforts her. And she just be like, you know, taking people's stuff and beating people up. And and she tried it with Alameda people with the RC people and they, and they took care of her and the way they took care of her is they held her down and pulled her collar and pulling the collar set off the, um, you know, the collars like uh, response yep. to when it thinks you're trying to take it off. And she, she was, she had to um, withstand a lot of pain and that was enough for her. She left them alone and moved on to other people that she could take advantage of on Sunday, December 11th. 2033 um they get more people and the new people are, are are in rough shape and um they had to build additional structures onto to the school so the community is getting um getting larger and larger um they were lauren was made to uh dig a cesspit mm -hmm. and she got lashed because she pointed out that it shouldn't go where it was because it was very near to the mm -hmm. well water and um and there could be a breach um, and they didn't want to hear nothing from her. So they, they lashed her. They also have a sign on the gate that says camp Christian re-education facility. So we knew acorn was gone, but it's really, 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 really gone. And uh, Lauren tries to find out what's going on, you know, outside world. So she's tried to, to talk um to uh people but it's very hard people risk their their lives saying anything in there 
So uh, she also is making a point to say that that um, being sharer is really bad there. So yeah. most of her people hide that they're sharers. They haven't they haven't been caught yet, but it's very very bad. And she meets somebody who seems to have a a decent heart. His name is David Turner, and um, he is a young black man, bone thin, um, scarred, scared, careful, but not beaten down. And she actually talks to him. His name is Carl. His nickname is Day. Mm -hmm. And when he tells her her name is Olamina, he's like, uh, and he's like, she says, okay, Lauren. And then he says, and people call you Laurie. And she's she's like, kind of expecting (laughs) an answer. And then they get lashed because they were, they got caught talking. But having this whole like kind of relationship to maybe speaking to someone who can be helpful without outside news and then getting in trouble and getting um, lashed, she gets more information. And they told her that uh, he'd seen a man get lashed until the man didn't know his name. And she believes him and she remembers how she responded when she saw that um, that Ben Coley was dead. And she said she was a zombie for several days after the lashing. And at first, I couldn't remember that Ben Coley was dead. Natividad and Allie, they had to keep telling her over and over again. And she also couldn't remember what happened to Acorn and why we were all shut up in one room in the school. Um, and she didn't understand, like, where were the men and where were the children? And this leads to her really writing about this whole era of time. And she reflects, after surviving Robodo, I knew that strangers could appear and steal or destroy everything and everyone I loved. People and possessions could, possessions could be snapped away. But somehow it had not occurred to me that that the bits of my own mind could be snatched away too. I knew I could be killed. I've never had any illusions about that. I could be disabled. I knew that too, but I had not thought that another person just by pushing a small button, then smiling and pushing it again and again. She really she really goes into deep, specific information about this collar life. Uh, She remembers her brother saying that it would make you envy the dead. And um, as bad as that sounds, she says, it it didn't. It couldn't convey to me how a collar makes you hate. It teaches you a whole new magnitude of utter hatred. I knew almost nothing about hate until this thing was put around my neck. Now, sometimes it's all I can do to stop myself from trying again to kill one of them and then dying the way Emery did. Mm -hmm. So... Um, she's talking on and off to Day Turner and, um, whenever they can, they just, they try to get um, more information to each other. And she's also encouraged Travis and Harry and the uh, other men to talk to him. This is Day's story. Uh, Day had walked, um, over the Sierras from his last dead end low paying job in Reno, Nevada. He had drifted Northwest and, um, he was hoping for, to find a chance to work his way out of poverty. It's pretty much what everybody is doing, walking around, trying to find a way out of um, poverty. And he gets, he's walking with two, two friends. And then the church um, of Christian America is kind of like, here are these places you can stay, you can help repair things and do other work. And then you get meals and you get to sleep someplace. And so they thought that might be a good place for them to rest. 
unfortunately, there were thieves in that community and and those thieves um, got caught and they were black. And so all of the other black men also got caught and then he got they all got arrested. And the people who were violent got like, you know, jail and he got this kind of probation where go go work at this camp for 30 days and then you can get out. And but he was never um, being released. He was always yeah. like, uh, and he's on his own. He doesn't have any family. So other people who had family, the family could show up and try to, you know, say, Hey, we know this person. They'll, oh, this yeah. is the other thing. They, they have that thing will prove that you have work. Yes. And then we'll let you out. And like, yeah. Oh my God, that <laughs> it's like, if you have work, that's how we know you're a good person. Yeah. So he can't prove that obviously because they've had him. So, and he has nobody else who can come and, you know, vouch for him. So he ends up, he ends up in this and then he ends up at, at Cat Christian um, for re-education. Now he also is a Christian man and he knows his Bible and they ask him to prove it. And he quotes Exodus twelve sixteen, and he, and he that still a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. And uh, for that wisdom, he was lashed. <laughs> so Camp Christian don't really want to hear really everything from the Bible. They just pick in the things that mm-hmm. will work for them. So he's up in this camp and he meets Lauren. There's lots more information about life at this camp and also about Day Turner who sounds like a a brilliant person um, on the rise. And they also points out that these camps are moving through communities and he thinks that they are getting this support from like good, good people because they, and I got my my quotation fingers (laughs) for this, good people, people but people are allowing them to exist because they are afraid that, that that one thing the camp is doing is like pulling these these people in the community that people don't like wandering around and and maybe these people will steal from you or maybe these people make the neighborhood look bad or whatever way you want to um, talk about about people who are without resources and without homes and without jobs and all of a sudden the energy and the focus is the blame is on these people yeah and so what a relief that you know that that Christian America is coming in with these camps and taking them off the street. And he also points out that people are afraid because they see themselves closer than they would like to the people who are like walking around the highways and trying to make it day by day. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Lauren is thinking about like, how long is this and how many, like how many people can really get put up in this in these conditions and the outside world not actually concern itself with it you know right now we talking about palestine and outside work world and their concern so um lauren olamina a very 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 long time can we stay in this state and so she's also talking about the war she's saying that um jared wanted war and so and worked intentionally on getting it started. And so that's why they are at war and war is that that big thing that takes up so much space. You can't it's hard to innovate on all of the other things that are needing attention. She thinks they have 
250 inmates um, now on ACORN. And she says that, you know, they might all be willing to die. But, you know, if all 250 people like kind of got together, she's like one person can kill everybody. So that is not a plan. Mm -hmm. And it is Sunday, December 18th. 2033 and Lauren has been raped. She says it happened twice, once on Monday and again yesterday. It is her Christmas gift from Christian America. On Sunday, December 25th, 2033. This is a really um Lauren really she has a few times in this story even in parable of the sower where she says I need to but I need to write And that's always the scariest thing to me because I know something terrible has happened. (laughs) She says, I need to write about what is happening to me. I don't want to, but I need to. And I'm just going to quote that she says, to be a sharer is to feel the pleasure and the pain, the apparent pleasure and the apparent pain of these people. There have been times when I felt the pleasure of one of our teachers when he lashed someone. The first time it happened, or rather the first time I understood what was happening, I threw up. So she's talking about her hyper empathy and she's, she's in this kind of horrible positioning being enslaved because she is, she is witnessing the fact that many of the, you know, teachers, they orgasm when they create pain, that it is a, a really vicious cycle of you know, putting people um, in positions where they can be tortured over and over again and absolutely helpless. And uh, the teachers get great, get great pleasure from it, include, including intentionally doing it until they orgasm. So she is, she is just really holding um, this being in this horrible kind of cycle of pleasure and pain. And she says, you know, pain, rape is done with the pretense of secrecy. After all, these men come to the camps and they do a tour of duty. Then at least some of them must go home to their wives and kids. And except for a few people who are there all the time, um, these men come and go and they rape, but they pretend they don't. They say they're religious, but power has corrupted even the best of them. I don't like to admit it, but some of them are in a strange way, decent, ordinary men. I mean, that they believe in what they are doing. They're not all sadists or psychopaths. Some of them seem truly to feel that collecting minor criminals in places like Camp Christian is right and necessary for the goal of the country. They disapprove of rape and the unnecessary lashings, but they do believe that we inmates are somehow enemies of the country. And their superiors have told them that parasites and heathens like us, like us brought down America the mighty. So there's, there is that. She is really disturbed by this. And I know you got questions about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the last bit as we, we start to unwind up is one, the doctrine that women are evil. Um, that women should not have um, put, you know, positions of power, uphold uh, leadership. This is in line with all of the violence and all of the camps and all of the everything. She talks about specifically her rape, which I'm going to read a little bit of right now. She says, my rape happened at the end of a very cold, rainy day. 
I have been given cooking duties. This meant I got to clean myself up and stay warm and dry for once, get enough to eat. And she was feeling grateful for this and ashamed of her gratitude. Mm -hmm. She worked with Natividad and two of the Gamma women. Of the four of us, only she was a share of the four of us. Only I endured not only my own pain and humiliation, but the wild, intense pleasure of my rapist. There are no words to explain the twisted, schizoid ugliness of this. To, to really find a way to um, battle back, she said they can't bathe often enough. They, they don't get hot water and they get little soap unless they have kitchen duty. If they are allowed to bathe, it's called vanity. So we are viewed with disgust and contempt if we stink. Um, we are said to, to be stink with sin. And she says, so be it. I have decided to stink like a corpse. I have decided that I would rather get a disease from being filthy than go on attracting the attentions of these men. I will be filthy. I will stink. I will pay no attention to my hair or my clothing. I must do this or I will kill myself. Chapter 13. Steal away, steal away home, oh, steal away, steal away home, oh, steal away, steal away home, oh, steal away, steal away home. He calls me by the thunder The trumpet sounds within my soul I got long to stay Trumpet sounds within my soul. I got long to Thank you, Toshi, for reading it, for bringing us through it. Um, let's just take a moment. 
If this activates you, you know, be with that. Notice that it's activating you. And here we're moving into questions, right? Questions to help us make meaning of this. Um, so I'm going to take us back to the top of the chapter where we're learning about the process Larkin goes through to become Asha Ver and the violence of renaming, the erasure of renaming is so prevalent throughout this series. So the question I have for our listeners is, are you a renamed person? Mm. Are you a renamed person? Are you the great grandchild of renamed people? You know, I know that whatever lineage I come from, Brown was not <laughs> the name. You know, Brown was the name that was given through ownership and mm -hmm. became the name that we have claimed. And But I, I'm always curious about, you know, what names pre precede that. And have you reclaimed your name? Have you renamed yourself? Have you considered doing mm -hmm. that? I know people who have renamed themselves and gender transition, who have renamed themselves because they're breaking the cycle of an abusive dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I think all of that feels really present here. It's just, is your name one that you chose, one that you understand? And, and what is the impact of the renaming process? Mm. What aspects of lineage and culture can survive the theft of our children? Yes. You know, I getting to experience it from inside of Larkin's journey, where it's like, I don't even remember parts of this. You know, like she mm -hmm. has a, a small memory of Acorn, no memory of the, the first re-education space. And then, you know, this experience of these adopted adoptive parents. And so she doesn't know the belief system and she doesn't know all the things that her people have to teach her. And that's intentional. So how mm -hmm. do we, how do we survive that? And how does culture survive that kind of onslaught? And then moving in the, the next questions are for what's what they're surviving in the camp. So the tactic of self-policing, I'm really grateful that Lauren explores this, that, she, that Octavia talked about how quickly this emerges um, as something that the captors are trying to get us to do, get, I mean, get mm -hmm. them to do to each other. And it made me have the question of what kind of solidarity do we have to build and how do we prepare ourselves to avoid the tactic of self-policing, right? How do we notice self-policing when it's happening, catch it and intervene on it? There's such a hard piece here because you know, there's community that they have built relationship with. And then there's all these new people who are coming in with no shared value, no shared sense of, oh, right, <laughs> we're all here trying to be good to each other. So how do you build solidarity mm. in those crisis conditions? Mm. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting, too, because it's like they are like, well, we're not going to control these new people but these new people are not going to have a say on what we're doing. You know, like they, the second they find somebody that's like trying to step, they like take that like, person yep. and they're like, you, you no, that's you not going to happen. Not gonna happen. Cause we have an intention. Yeah. Even here we have, was the thing Alexis says in the song held even here in the holding pattern, yes. here in the hold, remember you are named. Yes. And it, it feels like, you know, that's that. there's, um, something called freedom even if you can't see it that's right like that <laughs> thank you alexis falling down 
feels like they are occupying that space. Absolutely. And they're like, and if you can't occupy that space with us, or if you're a threat to it, we're we're gonna we're gonna end that. That's right. That's right. And there's so much that's happening right now where it's like we're talking about safety and survival at the most basic, basic, basic level. Like we're trying to get ourselves through this experience. And even that recognition of like, we recognize that you are bullying as a comfort. That's part of how you're getting yourself through this experience, but it's not going to work here with us. Um, That's right. I am also really concerned with the safety um, and security of the sharers. And I've asked this question before in, in a different context in the first season, uh, but what aspects of yourself do you currently hide for safety? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have to hide your empathy? Right. In this case, it's the hyper empathy that makes them vulnerable. But I think I see this often that people have to tuck away the part of themselves that has empathy um, for those that mm-hmm. we're supposed to despise or those that we're supposed to see as other or as enemy. Do you hide mm-hmm. your own complexity? Right. Your critical thinking. Do you hide your comforts? What actually gives you comfort um, moving through these things? And, you know, in this instance, it's like it's really smart for them to be hiding those things. <laughs> you know, this is how they're going to get right. through. And like just knowing like, oh, how do I prepare myself to be really smart about what I do and don't share? But there's a boundary there, too. You know, like sometimes the only boundary you can set is to contain um, the aspects of yourself that make you most vulnerable. Um, That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, you know, the cesspit moment is a really interesting one to me where, you know, they make Lauren dig the cesspit and then she's like, this is actually dangerous. Like, this is not a good place for it to go. It's going to contaminate our water. And then they lash her for telling them that. But then they do move the cesspit. They, right? do. <laughs> yes. they do move the cesspit. And it makes me think about manipulation and communication, like how we communicate with those who hate us and want to oppress us and and like what we have to do sometimes to try to manipulate them into the decisions like or take the risk of being like, okay, I'm going to tell you, even though I know that there's going to be this whole process where you yeah. violently punish me. And it makes me think, you know, the misogyny of this period, the misogyny of this chapter, the, mm-hmm. the deep, 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 deep fear and hatred of women in their power, in their humanity, is something that feels so familiar. Um, It feels so familiar. It feels so present right now that there's this misogyny that is is sometimes very overt, right? The fact that we still have any conversation around the right to our bodies and the right to make decisions around our bodies and the right to have abortions and such things. But it also feels like it's right under the surface in spaces where people – you know, men are like, oh, I have to behave appropriately or I have to say the right thing or I have to act as if yeah. I'm okay with this equality. But it's just that hatred um, is still right there under the surface. And it really makes me, I don't know if it's quite the question or maybe the question is like, how do we actually shift at the level of that fundamental belief, right? Mm. Like if if what is radical is to go to the root of something, like, where is the root of that misogyny? Where is the root of that hatred, right? And mm-hmm. how do we actually do the work at that level so that we're, we're, we don't, you know, that this cycle gets broken of being in situations where it's just like, oh, and once again, that misogyny is able to take the center line and, and you know, rape culture 
persists and we just have to somehow keep, I mean, it's just been so forever <laughs> and it's been, it's forever. been forever. And I'm like, I really wonder if our species can move past it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very crucial that we do. Yeah, and, we have um, to. <laughs> we have we to. Have but I'm to, like, how, not, how, how, how? Yeah, but the how is there, but we have to. Mm-hmm. And I think that, the, you know, I don't know if you have more, more rape questions. <laughs> uh, more rape questions? I do. I mean, there's something, well, there's other questions around pleasure and pain, right? Mm-hmm. Pleasure and pain. Yes. So the question that I'm holding with that one is, how do we unlearn the practice of deriving pleasure from non-consensual pain, mm. right? From non-consensual pain. Yeah. So what she's talking about there is like, cause that's the thing you don't, you know, it's like, oh, this is about power. Rape is about power. It's about holding power over someone, but we don't know how to talk about the pleasure of power. Right. Mm-hmm. And like the fact that there is a physical, emotional, you know, serotonin release, all this stuff is happening for people in the act of, of enacting power to the point of pain over someone, of violation, of taking from someone. There's something so deeply wounded in that act, in that that being the place where pain, where pain and pleasure fuse. And um, I say wounded because it really does feel like, I'm like, oh, when and how did that come to be our norm? It really does feel like such a norm in the culture at this point that even at the small scale of, you know, public shaming and harassment, like that's a lot of what's happening still is there's a pleasure that we are deriving from, yeah. from that pain of like, oh, I hold, I have more power in this scenario and it get and then it go, it grows and grows. And I think the question we have to be asking ourselves and the question I want to invite you all to be in conversation is how do we recover? If we, if we understand this to be not our base nature, right? Like babies don't come out of the womb, like what can I damage? Ha ha ha. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. if we understand that this is some socialized wounded behavior, how do we recover? How are you recovering? How are you in practices mm. around that recovery? Um, yeah. How do you intervene on it? You know? Yeah. And then do we see how we currently criminalize poverty? Do we see how we currently criminalize poverty? The whole story of Day, which I deeply appreciate. Uh, that his name is Day Turner because that that's mm-hmm. going to be meaningful. But the whole story of Day to me is really interesting. We I love when when Octavia offers these parallel parables, right? It's like, yeah. and here's how this other person has been going through, and here's what it was like to be a black man moving through these conditions, and here's what it was like. You know, here's what it's like. You know, she really speaks about the policing, the culture of vagrancy, the culture of being able to just sweep someone up uh, because they are black and how racism is still at the forefront of how we're viewing each other and the binary thinking is all so rudimentary and how easy it is for us to get caught up in that. But again, it just brings me right back to here and now, you know, it just feels Mm -hmm. so current that this is what we're talking about is there cannot be justice inside of a system where Poverty is being produced at the highest rate and poverty is being criminalized with the harshest punishment. Mm -hmm. Um, So do you see how we currently criminalize poverty? Are you engaged in that in any way? Are there, is there some parts of your own thinking that are, that leap to that assumption that leap to that place? Right. Yeah. I love that question. 
I mean, in New York, I feel like every day we're watching like a space where it, it wasn't anything specific happening in that space. And yeah. so it, be, it becomes a space that, you know, people can, can use people even during when COVID happened and they stopped the trains running that, yeah. that people really were like, no, we need this community needs the trains. Yeah. And, you know, and it lost out to, well, this is when we can keep the train, can clean the trains so that we can hopefully have the trains not be a place where COVID can thrive. Yeah. Um, but also we didn't have all the information about how COVID reacts to space. Yep. So, you know, it, it just, but we, we have so many buildings being built is mind boggling. Oh, it's yeah. just, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's every space in my neighborhood that had like you know not been developed in any way is now in development yep and then lots of buildings that used to be something are now going to become like more apartment buildings with stories at the bottom of them and um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's lots of communities fighting uh fighting this and you know i've talked about this before but the botanical gardens having to fight for the sun for the for the plants and things like that and then we're all we're all here participating and watching yes luckily lots of folks are in organization and activation and, and process by it but it is you know as you say it's a good question to ask yourself like what you know are you participating are you witnessing what what is happening yeah you know well because the thing that you're saying right now to me is like the heart of it right is you're benefiting from criminalized poverty if you're benefiting from gentrified situations, right? If you're living in a place that's like, you know, this place feels safer because of this, or you're able to move into it, you know, New York, yes, Detroit, same thing. You know, this, the yeah. the neighborhood all around me, you know, there's spaces that were public spaces. When I moved here 10 years ago, it was deeply black. It was deeply you know, it's still a space where people who were active users, people who were sex workers, other stuff, this was their community. This was their space. They were taking care of each other. And this was a place where they were out and about. Um, and the parks were places where they could sit, where they could gather, where they could do business, That's where right. they could exist. And in the spirit of gentrification, it was like, oh, now this is going to be a fancy new restaurant. Now this is going to be um, a new, you know, um, multi-use building, a new loft building, whatever. And you just see how 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 the violence happens, and it it's so quick because exactly what Octavia is talking about here. It's like out of sight, out of mind. It's like we'll just sweep these, mm -hmm. these this this element out of sight, out of mind. That you have you. It only works because so many people are like, I do kind of think those people are bad. I do kind of yeah. think right. And I love how she then furthers it. She's like, people are scared to be there. So they want that far away from them. They're scared. They We're all scared. I, I don't want to be homeless. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be, you know, um, an addict on the street or whatever it is that's going through people's minds. It's like, I don't want to be that. So I don't want to see that. Right. And as long as we hold that, that those are not us, that those people are not of us, they're not part of yeah. us, right? Then anything can happen to those people and we will basically sit idly by. And yes, that happens globally. So we're in this period where like Palestine is in another moment of total crisis and under a t another moment of total attack. And it's like the crisis is constant and then there's these escalations where yeah. global attention can be brought to like, look at what they're doing right now 
um, in this entire occupied territory of Palestine, because the whole thing is occupied territory. It's not like there's, like, oh, right. this part is Israel. This, no, it's all occupied Palestine. And there's this escalation happening. And then it's happening in Colombia right now. There's, it's what's happening in India right now. Like all these places right. are basically places where this criminalized poverty is happening. And, and, Power people are making land grabs and territory grabs and resource grabs, right? Yeah. And hoarding grabs. And it's just, it's all economic. <laughs> it's all economic. It's, it's all like it if we stick with capitalism, we, we will not be able to move out of these cycles of criminalized poverty, violence, and violent gentrification and all of it. Um, and so I love the microcosm that Lauren has created with this condition where it's just mm -hmm. like, it's all here. There's nothing that's happening in the world that is not present in this um, this space right now. Yeah. It's so important because there's no, it's so important for us to check in with ourselves around, around what you just raised because there's no um, love, respect, accountability. There's no supporting uh, diverse communities. Uh, my community is not safer because the house next door went for $2.1 million across Oof. the street. Like, that these black folks used to have, you know, like it's not, it doesn't make my community safer. And I think that's also what is the landscape of safety? Yeah. You know, it's like, because, you know, you to turn a, a, you know, a beautifully loud um, block into a very, very quiet one. Yes. <laughs> it just doesn't feel safe to me. I'm like, no, I need to hear that music at 7.45 a.m. Right. <laughs> and that, you know I can't remember who wrote that, but the eyes on the street theory, right? It's just like, we're actually safer when community is about and we can see yes. each other and hear each other and we know each we other's rhythms each other. and patterns. But behind yeah. the thick walls and the quiet streets where Ooh. we're all alone and we're isolated, that's actually where we become like that's not the, it's, it's the not. myth of safety but it's actually the most dangerous condition for for our species there you go. right and yes i think this ties in actually to the next question because i also feel and tell me if i'm stretching too far and i will whoop, wind it back but i also feel like there's a critique of capitalism in the, the way she's talking about feeling the pleasure of her oppressor right being mm -hmm. able to actually feel the pleasure of the oppressor being able to feel the pleasure of the person who is causing harm as it's happening. Because I think that's what we're living in right now is we have some small access to the pleasures that our oppressors have massive access to. And we mm -hmm. live inside the trickle down pleasure realm. And we're always looking for just a little bit more, a little bit more of that, even though we know it's causing great harm to us, it's causing great harm to the planet, it's causing great harm to our communities. Um, but be that that experiencing the pleasure we do experience, which, you know, she makes it complex for us. It's both as a sharer, she's experiencing that from her captors, but also the way the collar is designed is it doses out pleasure in addition to dosing out pain. And all of it feels like this is the toxic soup that we are in right now. Mm -hmm. If it was only the pain of capitalism, if we only felt the, the part of, parts of it that are miserable, I don't think it could persist. But because there's just enough access to pleasure inside of it, um, it persists. And because we have to recognize that for some people, the act of oppression is a pleasurable act for them, right? That there's mm -hmm. something about that that's actually like, I love it. I love it. You know, I love being a mis yeah. misanthropic uh, existence, you know? I mean, yeah. 
I don't think you've gone too far. And I, I do. I think like like uh, when it was Earth Day, I always look for like something that's very simple that the to post that people can do, can have access to. And yeah. there's all of these amazing articles around the planet and um, and our climate crisis. And and honestly, I don't think a lot of people will read them because it's a lot, a lot of information. Yeah. And so I always look for something like you know, look one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What can people do? So there's one, there was, I found one. And one of the things on it was stop or cut down your um, buying things online. Yes. And, and um, (laughs) and it was for multiple reasons, but one, one of them was like to keep your neighborhood stores and to keep actual people working outside, keeping people, you know, having to walk down the street and go and get some, like keeping the efforts of your existence in your life. And then the other is how much energy our online lives cost us. That's right. Um, particularly with storage and, and security issues and things like that. We just had a, um, you know, a pipeline, you know, breach of some kind, security breach yep. attack, you know, so just looking at like how vulnerable the system is and, and how can you divest came in really handy for something like COVID when we all, were like really, really needed to try to stay in contact and not be, mm. but do we, do we like release some of that as we start to, you know, do we recognize the people who are actually trying to exist in shops, pay rent yeah. and keep goods in a store? Yeah. Um, are we making these kind of choices? So um, mm. I, I just think there is a connection to our behavior and this whole question of capitalism. And then this idea of, pulling down the, the, the pleasure rain on you because you yeah. get, you can achieve some of the, some of these things, Yes, you know, like I feel really grateful to have an apartment yes. <laughs> that I can afford. Yes. You know, I take a lot of pleasure in that, but I also know it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like what the rents are and that they have no relationship to people whatsoever. It's yeah. the made up matrix of the economy just yeah. completely made up. Yes. So the marketplace and blah, 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 blah it does feel like you get caught, you get caught in, in feeling grateful for what you have. And then you, and feeling grateful, you don't have to struggle. And then you're caught because you're enraged that everybody doesn't have it or have enough. And yeah. that you can see how you are participating in the pain and suffering yeah. of other people and the planet. Yeah. And I, I think, um, uh, Sonia Renee Taylor recently did a post about this that I thought was really relevant, which was like having resources is not bad. Like having, having some money or having a home or having your needs met is not bad. It's the capitalist system that means you can only have them at someone else's expense and that constantly Mm -hmm. is turning us against each other. And it is like only exploitation yields your comfort. That's where it's a mess. And so it's like, how do we start to, shift ourselves into these systems of, of cooperative economics and other things. But in this case, I mean, they're so far from, you know, it's like, okay, do I have an hour on Sunday that I can call mine? There's no space. Yes. There's no, um, you know, for, for me, as I'm reading this, I'm just like this, she, she is really helping us understand the terror of the prison system, the terror mm-hmm. of be, the modern day enslavement of human beings, which is you might have an hour, you might have, you get to walk around to the yard or whatever, but fundamentally you are living completely under the thumb of someone else who 
can enact whatever cruelties they want at any time. Um, and it's in the jurisdiction of, of the law at, you know, like it's like this stuff is technically illegal maybe. Right. But it's all being allowed to happen because the, the culture has set and the law is on their side because they are white men, um, in this scenario. So mm. there's something about the faith component of this too, that is just like huge and important. A question I had around this is how do we navigate the dangers of faith-based community and faith-based um, organizing when it can produce spaces that lack critical thinking or that really repress critical thinking. And if you have a faith system that is infused with supremacy and infused with binaries of good, bad, going to heaven, going to hell, you know, um, men are superior, whatever it is. If you have those kind of things infused and then people are not being taught to think critically, this can get so out of hand so quickly and the contradictions get so out of hand so quickly, right? So especially for those of us who are, those those who are listening to this and reading along with us, who are part of those faith-based communities, how are you maintaining the practice of critical thinking within those spaces? How are you ensuring that what you're learning about justice and equity also find a home within those spaces. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing I want to just touch on is rape in, in this other way, which is um, so many of us are walking around with rape in our history, in our background, in our, what we're surviving on a regular basis. And to know that this is what's happening for Lauren as a leader it's like she's a leader who's supposed to continue with this violation. Um, the question I have for you is we have a ton of survivors in our midst as have you, will you, can you share with each other what you know about surviving and recovering from rape? Because mm -hmm. it's very rare that the survivor in the recovery is like, oh, everything was made right. And the person who, who did this harm to me realized what they had done and they made amends and like this whole process happened. We're, we're not in that place in history. Um, we're in a place where we're just beginning to be able to have conversations about consequences. And we're just beginning to figure out how we tie that to abolition and other things, but we're still surviving all the time, every day. Um, so maybe you're part of the me too circles who have been sharing their stories and, and that's one of your tools but what are the other tools? Like if you could sit down next to Lauren and, and say, okay, you have been raped. Here is some things you should know. What is the wisdom that we have to offer to her, to all of those amongst us in real time who are surviving? Yes. Yeah. Amazing question. Well, all right. That's a lot of questions, but it's a lot of story. So it feels like there's there's so much there's so many directions we can go in here and we want to be thorough uh, in in going there. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for sticking with us and being willing to do this kind of scholarship. Octavius Parables is hosted by Toshi Regan and myself, Asia Marie Brown. We are produced by Kat Aaron with help from Kenzie Clark. Our music is from Toshi Regan. Oh, you're going to do that part. It's always written in my little notes. <laughs> you got to go ahead and do your notes. You know, I love it. Our show art is by Krista Franklin.
Music for Octavia's Parables, Always See the Stars, written and performed by Toshi Regan. God is Change, written by Toshi Regan, performed by Toshi Regan and Bernice Johnson Regan. Steal Away, a very necessary spiritual, arranged and performed by Toshi Regan. Held, words written by Alexis Pauline Gums, music written by Toshi Regan, performed by Toshi Regan. Um, You can find us on Twitter at O Parables and sustain our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash O Parables and all of our transcripts and past episodes are at readingoctavia.com. Yay. Huzzah. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change.